and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Well, there's a great deal of power in how you tell a story, and there's many, many ways to do it. Our four Gospels are a clear example of this, each telling relatively uh, similar accounts to the same person, but each begin in wildly different ways. Uh, Each has a unique beginning that tells us something about this author's intention for writing this Gospel. See, the the way a story is told gives it power. It holds clues to the hearer and to the viewer of what kind of story they're in. If you've seen Star Wars, you know this is true. The black background, the blue text comes up and says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then the yellow text crawl comes up from the screen, detailing everything that you need to know before walking into the first scene. See, these yellow words with the epic score give us the necessary information on what's going on, where we're going. But Mark doesn't give us the benefit of this kind of prologue. Instead, it opens with Jesus's baptism at the Jordan River with John. And then 20 verses later, we're at today's text, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And it's a dramatic scene full of suspicious scribes and back-talking demons and astonished onlookers. It's actually quite cinematic if you close your eyes and imagine. So do that with me as we read the text this morning. From Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying with a loud voice, came out of the man. And they were amazed, all of them. And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, at once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'll admit that I'm particularly familiar with this passage because last semester I was tasked with translating it along with the rest of Mark chapter 1 for my introductory Greek course. And what this required me to do, because I'm not very good at Greek, is slowly look at each word one at a time, looking it up in the concordance, figuring out its meaning, meditating on its meaning to figure out the best way to translate it into our English language. And every time I sat down, I had a hard time. I struggled mightily to get a grip on just what was being said. 
But as I sat with these texts, and particularly this text, I found myself participating in like an impromptu Lectio Divina. Reading this passage dozens of times, over and over and over in my study, slowly reading each word, allowed me to hear the conspiratorial whispers of the scribes. I saw the faces of those astonished. I saw Jesus teaching and healing and talking to the unclean spirit. I saw everybody who was astonished at this miracle they were witnessing before their eyes. And then my mind went to one word from this passage. And it's a word that I'm still thinking about as I'm recording this sermon. In Greek, the word is exousian, which in our English language is often translated as authority. Um, You could also say power to act or like a moral right. Um, I was captivated by the phrase street cred when I was translating this. Uh, And I'm struck by this word. I'm struck by the word, particularly the word authority, because almost always authority seems to be misused and abused in our world in 2021. And I don't think it was different in the Gospel of Mark. See, we think of uptight assistant principals or self-righteous politicians or corrupt leaders with misplaced motives. See, we, we think of authority and we're skeptical. And we're right to be skeptical because it's so often misused and abused. But I want to challenge you that if you think hard enough and long enough, you may be able to think of at least one person that you know that used authority in a different way, in a way that subverts our pessimism about authority. Maybe it was a similar way we see it in this passage. The people in the synagogues, they noticed Jesus' authority as a teacher. And that's probably a good place to start because you can probably think of at least one teacher you had that had this kind of authority where when they spoke, people listened. Likewise, I'm sure, almost certain, that you can think of a teacher that you had who misused their perceived authority and it was to the detriment of their students. However, I want to say that this authority of Jesus isn't just the fact that he's a good teacher, that he's got a good pedagogy. See, when people would get up to speak in the synagogues in the first century, they would teach based on someone else's authority. They would quote a teacher who was quoting another teacher who was quoting another teacher and so forth. But what makes Jesus unique is that he spoke on his own authority. He didn't quote anybody. He didn't invoke other people. He spoke on what he believed in his own authority. Which, um, if we're going to be honest, is a bit scandalous. I mean, the scribes are right to be nervous about this. The scribes have put in years, maybe decades, of study into their teaching. Their whole lives have poured into this. The scribes are doing what you and I would do when we teach something. They're doing what I'm doing when I'm preparing for the sermon. They're researching. They're asking questions, making detailed lists. So the question becomes, what makes the authority unique about Jesus? Why do the people in Capernaum, why do they believe him? Why do they see him as an authority? Because for someone to walk into a synagogue in Capernaum in the first century and teach on their own authority is almost unbelievable. 
I mean, what makes the authority that silences these demons different from the authority of Herod or of Caesar or even the scribes who are appealing to, by all accounts, an okay authority? To answer this question, we have to go back to the first point about genre. See, Mark is trying to say something. Remember my Star Wars example of letting you know what kind of story you're in? Well, Mark's gospel, like we said, doesn't give you any indication of where you are. There's no prophecy. There's no lineage. We open with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And the reason is, I think, in part, because Mark's gospel is not about words. It's not about saying the right thing. I think it's a focus in elementary Greek courses like mine because the vocabulary is quite simple. They don't need to give you much narrative context. There's not theological asides. It's just one event immediately after another. And scholars think that this is probably because the text was meant to be read aloud in groups of people and shared quickly. Um, Some even think that whoever was reading the text was almost performing it um, because there's so many acts of embodiment here. But the point of this story, and the reason I'm bringing this up, is that it's not really about what Jesus is teaching. That's not, that's not the interest. The point is, the people in Capernaum saw him for who he is. They saw him as one of their own. To remember, Capernaum isn't, the, isn't Buckhead or the capital or anything like that. It's a working class place, a place where years of oppression have taken place. And so the people who live there, they want someone who looks like them and speaks like them to lead them. And that's what Mark is trying to get you to see. This person is one of us. He's like the readers of Mark. He looks like us. He talks like us. He acts like us. He's with us. See, Jesus is like them, and that's what makes them able to recognize him. I mean, this authority is so present that even the demons see it. Now, demons may feel like something that we want to sweep under the rug. And honestly, it's something that I am not the most comfortable talking about. But if I would be a bad preacher, if I didn't at least attempt to address this subject. See, maybe you're like me and you read this story and you think uh, 1973, The Exorcist, Linda Blair, dramatic uh, scenes of exorcism. Um, but if we think about it, that's a, that's a horribly disturbing film, right? It depicts these violent scenes of exorcisms and demonic possession, and it's still to this day considered one of the most disturbing films of all time. And it's created this almost this entire new genre of demon possession films that come out around Halloween that are all not very good. But I want to ask you to do your best to remove that imagery, remove the Hollywood imagery of demonic possession from your mind. See, in this story, there's no, there's no holy water. There's no metal crosses. In this story, it's a simple exchange. The demons say, we know who you are, and you're not welcome here. And Jesus basically says, shh. See, Jesus wasn't the first figure to claim to have this ability to cast out demons, and he certainly wasn't the last. But what is unique the way he did it. Other people in this era would have used more violent methods to cast out demons. They would have done these rituals that uh, would be quite scary to you and me. 
or worse, they would have left this man to fend for himself in the brutal world alone. Again, though, the gentle authority of Jesus is manifesting itself here. The demon knows. The people in the synagogue know. The scribes that are side-eyeing Jesus know and see. The simple authoritative command shows us and showed the readers of Mark that this person is wildly different. It's a totally different way of doing business. See, it's the words and deeds of a true authority that casts out demons, not, not the rituals, not the holy water, not the crosses. And I, we can admit that it's kind of easy to dismiss this story because of this demonic phenomenon, right? And I'll admit that I'm not probably able to answer your most pressing questions on the role of demons in the New Testament. But what I do know and what I do believe is that we can't turn away from the demons in Mark. Or we may end up turning away from the demons that are present today. You know, you know what these demons are. You don't need me to tell you. It's things like white supremacy, homophobia, sexism, violence. I would also add that the words that tell you that you're not worthy, the voices that tell you you're not worthy, the words that say that you can't be loved are also demonic. But I want to gently remind you, maybe not so gently remind you, that those voices have no power in the coming kingdom of God. See, this story is a reminder to us, and especially to the marginalized, that the demons don't get to name you. Later in this, te- later in Mark, in Mark chapter three, there's going to be a scene where Jesus will give the disciples new names, names like Rock or Sons of Thunder, names with meaning. And he will give them the task to name, the task and the authority to name and silence the demons. And as followers of Christ, we're not, we're not left out of this. We too are given new names. We're given names like beloved, child of God. And we're called to join Christ in the naming and the silencing of the demons. So this morning this week, may you remember that there is power in the naming and there is power in the work of silencing, but also go and go knowing that you have been named. You have been named beloved. Amen.